1: There's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about
0: hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany, my name nine, <laughs> Does my hair
1: look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Mike Glover is the CEO of Fieldcraft Survival. Mike came onto my radar on a post, probably two or three months ago, where he said he wanted to go to Kruger National Park in South Africa to understand and maybe help with the rhino poaching. Well, rhinos in South Africa, specifically in Kruger National Park, have plummeted. Their populations are down 75%. And so I reached out to Mike Get them on our podcast to essentially talk about that, but as you'll hear, we took a significant left turn to talk about ballistics six point five Creedmoor and the ethics of long range shooting. It's fast paced, exactly like we like our podcasts. So enjoy. Mark it out. Okay. So I I noticed you specifically because you said hell yeah, I want to go to South Africa next year and help with the rhino poaching.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I well, one, the, the week I was supposed to leave to do a recce, uh, the, our government shut down all travel restrictions. Um, right. Or shut down and implemented travel restrictions against the South African uh, country as well as like neighboring countries which I think was ridiculous that he did that, but um, that kind of pushed our timeline. But yeah, I, I want to do it in, um, uh, it's called Kruger National Park. Yep, Kruger National Park. What you'll know yeah. about me is
1: I, have a, I did all of my honors research and my master's research at Kruger National Park. I spent probably eight months in the northern plains of Kruger. And so when it's, it's a near and dear to my heart kind of deal. It's where I cut my teeth in uh, wildlife management. And, um, I was also given a very young, uh, sort of, they call them police back in the day, they called them police boys. They called them the poises and the, po- the poises were the section rangers that went out on anti-poaching patrols. And I was given one to go and do all my research on the Northern Plains. And this guy was pretty much like, if we come across poachers, screw your research, we're chasing them. And we chased two sets of poachers whilst we were there. And it was crazy. Like, I've got no military background, Mike. I I came from South Africa. I wish I had military background. You know, folks like you, I owe everything to because I'm a US citizen today and I've got two small boys that are being raised in this country. But that's as close to where I've, I've been a situation that, you know, bullets are being shot and saying, you know, get on the ground kind of deal.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. I think um, people forget that poachers are living in a constant state of desperation. I mean, they're... There's a, it's not, you don't have to be empathetic to understand and know your enemy. You just need to be understanding. And uh, a poacher's psychology is living in a constant state of anxiousness because he has to provide for his family. And so 100%. what he's doing, what, what, he's, what he thinks he's doing, just like a freedom fighter, you know, one person's enemy or, or terrorist group or terrorist as another, you know, community's freedom fighters. And so, um, when you understand that about them, it could be super sketchy when it comes to like the tactics that are involved, because they're not, they're not going to be willing to like give up or potentially they'll fight to the death. And that's, that's scary, man. I, I'm, I'm glad you, it worked out right for you, but I've heard that about Kruger National Park because of the, the border situation where it borders right. and they come in across the border, do the, the. All the things that they're doing, and then pull them across the border, and that's how they get away with it.
1: No, hundred percent, hundred percent. Bordered by Zimbabwe to the north, and obviously its entire length to the east by Mozambique. Um, so it's a tough, it's a tough scenario to to police, essentially. And again, you got to remember these guys that are getting paid to protect the wildlife in South Africa are paying, getting paid pittance, right? And so the guys that are coming in from a rhino poaching perspective are saying, "Shit, you're making a hundred dollars a month." I'll give you a thousand dollars if you tell me where Rhino is. What would you do, Mike?
0: Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, especially in that in that state of I mean, you, you, you grew up in Africa. I mean, it's like depending on where you're at, depending on your situation, I mean, you could grow up in dirt. You know what I mean? Like 100%. you don't have aspirations for the future and getting paid a lot of money, which could put you in a position where you you see all your dreams come true on a on your cell phone if you're lucky to have one, that's that's impactful, mm-hmm. man. And there, there has to be a good mm-hmm. balance. It's just like I look at it as like uh, homicide rates or crime rates and fighting crime in uh, America. I have a you know academic degree in law enforcement and uh, criminal justice, and y- when you get the academia version of criminal justice, you learn it's a comprehensive problem. It's not just one single position. Like you need more cops on the streets, more security. That's not. That's going to fix one one-hundredth of the problem, and with poachers, certainly it's the case that it's a very complex problem. It's not just as easy as interdicting them because the, it's just like terrorism. The more you interdict them, the more you kill or capture them, the more they'll produce and the more that you'll be fighting that war forever.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Mike Glover, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. I am I'm certainly humbled up. and grateful for you to be here. Uh, for those that don't know who you are, you want to give a little introduction
0: to who you are? yeah sure i'm i'm uh you know i'm a i guess I'm a military guy. I would position myself as that i I spent twenty years in the in the army and then uh had a stint uh government contracting in the CIA and then you know I feel like I grew up at some point and decided you know i want to do something different with my life so I started a business and now I'm an entrepreneur that owns a company in Utah. We have uh, a place in North Carolina and Utah uh, employ 50 people that focused our attention on training, equipping and educating civilians, citizens to be better prepared. And, you know, and like we were just talking about with South Africa, I get a lot of traffic and a lot of good communication with people in South Africa, cause they're living that kind of same life, which is, you know, a semi-permissive environment where they need to be able to protect themselves. And that's our mission statement with the field craft survival.
1: So let me ask this question: Did you grow? Were, are you, are you a hunter, Mike?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I grew up a hunter. I'd say, I, growing up, I, I fished more than I hunted, but certainly a hunter.
1: Have you felt any in sort of the military world in the world that you've gone into this entrepreneurial world that you live in now? Uh, probably I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway. Have you felt any like push? From someone to say, mm, mike, you know you, you're into this military stuff, now you're into the survival stuff. maybe you shouldn't be talking about hunting you know as much as you do or, or when you do. Let's just leave that stuff alone, you know
0: yeah, I, I think it's I love it <laughs> funny I, get, I mean it, it's out there, it's residual. I don't pay attention to a lot of it, but I certainly you know there's some elements that I would validate that say that that I would say I get it." You know, like um, what I realized going into hunting, um, committing to it more full time because I wasn't dependent on an operational or a a, a combat cycle. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm a sniper by trade, and as a sniper in special operations, I understand data, I understand ballistics, and I understand the capability of my weapon systems, my optics, all, all the things that make a sniper a good sniper. And what I realized in the hunting space. All the things that you pay attention to uh, in a hunt aren't necessarily directed at like having the best setup for a gun. It's like, hey, let's go out here, shoot a paper plate. And if we hit the paper plate. That's good enough. But mm-hmm. I grew up in a, a a culture where it was never that was never accepted. And so when it comes to shooting my bow, when it comes to hunting with my bow, when it comes to shooting a gun and hunting with my rifle. Um, I, everything has to be perfect. So. That and even communicating it has caught some flack from people that are like, ooh, you know, you're on on murky water and, you know, whatever.
1: It's funny how this idea of discussing a thing that you love so much, just because you like it this way and someone likes it the other way, somehow in the hunting community space, that's like taboo. You're not supposed to. You know, I'm not supposed to agree with you, Mike, if you like to shoot things at 600 yards when I think I wouldn't, you know, it's this, I I don't get it.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, that same exact issue came up and it's not, I always say, especially with long guns and hunting, it has nothing to do with the distance because everybody hones in on the distance where if you're, if you're looking at six, five Creedmoor over 308, Completely different considerations because at a thousand yards, uh, the science tells us that 6.5 Creedmoor has double the hit ratio of 308. I know that because I was part of the studies in Special Operations Command and, and have an employee who actually ran the study with Brian Litz, the biggest brain in external ballistics. You just um,
1: said 6.5 Creedmoor has bigger hitting power at a thousand than a 308,
0: it has double the hit ratio over 308 at a thousand yards which is why special operations command is going to it. Now, n- now when I went to cyber school, I had a 308. I had an M24, like a Remington 700 long action that was just dialed in. It was it probably wasn't even dialed in. It just had a better trigger. So, when I when I shot and held a wind call at Fort Bragg North Carolina at 600 meters, um I could tell the difference between that and 300 wind mag because I was holding half the distance in the wind call. So if the wind Mm -hmm. call is 1.5 mils, I would hold, you know, three quarter mil. And so when, when you look at the, the data or the science, a lot of hunters, because they don't know the very specific details will focus on the distance. It's not about the distance for me, as far as being ethical, it's about the time of flight. So it's the time of flight of the round, when it leaves the barrel that you can calculate based on the distance to determine what that time of flight is, is going to be. And if you're looking at a time of flight at 600, 800, um, beyond yards and that time of flight runs into the seconds, then yeah, that could be completely unethical. Cause one, you're out of the distance of the animal two, a lot of things change in seconds. And then three, if you wound the animal, the likelihood of you actually harvesting or, or killing that animal is, is reduced because of the distance, um, mm-hmm. Quickly, the last thing on that is not just the time of flight, but it's also, um, it's also the, I mean, there's a whole bunch of calculations that we can count, account for, but it's also the responsibility of where that bullet is supersonic, where it's transonic, where it's shifting, and then where it's subsonic. If you're shooting a gun, it's, say it's 308, and, it's, and you're shooting beyond 800 uh, meters, I'm used to meters metric. Then you're certainly in mind, because
1: subject. i'm south african and everyone in the world uses metric by the way it doesn't matter
0: yeah <laughs> yeah i grew up it's so weird being a hunter because it's all yards um i speak metric but it's like if that bullet is 800 meters or beyond well then it's it's subsonic which just means in layman's terms it's less predictable so if you're looking at 800 meters where it's subsonic not
1: less powerful not less powerful mike less predictable
0: yeah yes less predictable less predictable okay. because the one environmental factor that we have yet based on my conversations with the best technological experts in the world is wind we can't account for wind so that wind at that distance when it's subsonic is is going to do some things that's unpredictable reducing our hit probability which you know is just a, a lot of talk about hey pay attention understand the data mm-hmm. before you get to conversations about like 308's the best round ever made. Well, I get it, because you're emotionally tied to it, because your granddad taught you how to shoot that 308. That's fine. But there's a lot better calibers and rounds and, and experts than than you, potentially.
1: All right. I'm gonna pry open a Pandora's box here because but I need to set it up for you. Half the things you just said, I've never heard because you're speaking to the most naive individual when it comes to guns, ammo's, calibers, ballistics, okay? I need a Mike Glover two-day immersion course. And, Robbie, this is what this does. This is what this does. This is what this does. Okay. So here's the Pandora's box. There is a a sentiment in the hunting community that 6.5 Creedmoor sucks ass. Yeah. That shooting uh, elk at, with a 6.5 Creedmoor is the worst thing that you can possibly do. Why would they be saying that, Mike?
0: So that... The re- I mean, there's a couple of reasons. One, 6.5 Creedmoor is a long, skinny round. And terminal ballistic effects on a 6.5 Creedmoor aren't as good as some other, like 338 Lapua. Not, not debatable. Um, so w- one of the problems with this is also the mentality of what you look at as a kill box on an elk. So you, one, you put a 6.5 Creedmoor round through the chest cavity or the kill box which is, at a minimum, most people would consider 18 inches by 18 inches by 18 inches squared. Some could get be depending on what elk, some could be two feet by two feet by two feet. When you look at that as a minute of angle and accuracy tethered back to the gun, then you have a wide tolerance for using a lot of wacky rounds. Because as long as you get a round into that chest cavity, you're going to put it down. Now, one of the problem, inherent problems of 6.5 that I've heard from hunters is that because it's bl- because it's sharp because it's thin because it's long it's not doing as much damage which is increasing the mm. time of kill which is completely true um you know i just killed a um a, a mule deer up in the mountains of utah right right down the street from my house and i used a 308 but i was at 250 275 yards and 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 he was moving tracking and i i put one through his chest well any round at 500 yards or in It's almost irrelevant. All the major hunting calibers, 308, 762 by 51 300 Win Mag, 300 Norma, 300 uh, or or, uh, 6.5 Creedmoor are going to destroy that animal um, very fast and and get a a very good ethical kill. What I, what my thing is with 6.5 is if you look at the guns that are made for 6.5 Creedmoor, like the Sig Cross, the Sig Cross out of the box is I know my friend designed that gun. Dan Horner, who's a buddy of mine, who who uh, is a professional shooter, taught my special forces team when I was uh, a young team sergeant a decade ago, designed this rifle with hunting in mind. Lightweight, um, super uh, accurate out of the box. So if I take that gun and it's a sub-minute gun, meaning it shoots a one inch by one inch group at a hundred yards, that means at distance, let's say it's, uh, five yard or 500 yards, it's going to be a 5-inch by 5-inch group. We're still talking about this. So mm-hmm. when you look mm-hmm. at other rounds, they're not capable, because of the, the characteristics of the actual round, of having that kind of accuracy at distance. My debate or argument for 6-5 would be, if Special Operations Command is down-selecting a 6-5 Creedmoor to kill terrorists on bat- foreign battlefields, um, because it's the best round at killing human beings, then I would likely reference that for the best round killing elk. When you're paying attention, if you're now lobbing around right. seven millimeter into the side of an elk and your box is this big, then it's not a big deal. But if you're like me, mm-hmm. I don't want to put a round into the box. I want to put a round into the off-color segments of the hair in the box. You know, and that's the difference mm-hmm. between a thing, uh, like a PRS shooter, a sniper. And, you know, I don't know, just a hunter who, who's just not potentially paying attention.
1: Mm-hmm. Going back to the whole like long range debate, right? That's one of the things that if you if you look into the hunting community, there's certain things that elicit a lot of controversy, a lot of hate. Long range shooting is one of those that almost elicits this ethical component, right? And ethics is the, actually the wrong terminology there. Ethics is, is tied to, you know, uh, uh, the killing of that animal. When it comes to long range, I, I, it almost falls in the preference category, okay? But let's just for for argument's sake, for discussion's sake, let's call it ethics. Go back to what is that? That how would you describe someone like you know? When I say when someone says eight hundred's too far, to me, I'm like, okay, well, why? Like, why is it eight hundred too far, and you say three hundred's okay? Why do you why do you think the distinction is there? that 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 drives that number.
0: Yeah. Well, I I think I think ultimately it has to do with hit probability and less emotion and less um like I I think I got those skill sets, right? Like a lot of people will virtue signal in hunting, just like any other space in industry, because it's experience based and and what I've realized about hunting, which is very different than what I grew up hunting. I grew up hunting whitetail in tree stands and hunting whitetail in tree stands is like hunting at a zoo like it's just not fair i mean it's like it's not one it's not fair two it's not fun and but that's just how you grow up you mean mike it's
1: not fair like we thought there was a pandora's box you just freaking opened away pandora's box of course it's fair mike come on you are not pinned in you didn't circle a pen around a tree and the, the deer came out and you shot it Come on now,
0: well, I think that you know what's it's funny is that derives from my experience in combat like i like I had different instances in combat where I'm like, this doesn't seem fair, right It's like like I, this is an easy thing for me to accomplish. this is an easy thing for me to kill, and it my brain processes like that, so when I came out west, I realized. There's this other world, you know, I started in Colorado and did a couple elk hunt and a couple bear hunt with my buddies and realized, man, not only is this realistic to what I did for a career field, but it's challenging and it, it forces you to refine all of your skill sets, fitness. If you're not, if you're, if you're a, you know, a backwoods hunter in North Carolina used to operating out of a tree stand, you're not going to have a fitness regime set up for your hunt. You screw around and go to Idaho, like I just got back from Sawtooth, where the estimates are we walked about 40 miles in three days. Um, that was oh. brutal, and I, I'd do it for a living. I mean, that that, that yeah. for me was like a yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we I, I think the distinction is where you're hunting, uh, what you're hunting for, and then this relationship to distance. Um, I I don't like when people talk kind of out of their butts about it, if they understand number one, the first question I would ask a hunter, if they started talking about distance in argument, I would say, what is the muzzle velocity of your round in feet per second out of the barrel? And and if you if you pay attention to ninety
1: five percent of the people would say
0: we don't know. Exactly. Yeah. But that's the first metric that you would use to identify the in combination with the density altitude, your applied ballistics dope, your data on previous engagement, for all the stages of where that round going to be in space and time. So muzzle velocity, and then I would say, do you know when your round goes subsonic or transonic? And again, <coughs> if they don't know that, then they don't know where they need to zero their weapon system to true it. It's called truing. And this is all... You know, this is If anybody's listening to this, they're like, what the hell is this dude talking about? This is all based on Todd Hodnett, uh, which changed the sniper game. Kevin Owens, who works for me, actually helped in this process. But it's all about ballistic calculators and understanding your dope. Because this is more powerful of a tool in your ballistics and mm. understanding what your gun's doing than, than shooting your dope on a day that you think is going to be similar to the day that you shoot on the hunt. Those days are long gone. I'll catch some shit for that too.
1: No. No, look, I think you're going to catch it for a bunch of shit that you just said about fair chase and whatnot. But what you did say is this. This is what I, this is what I heard you say. When you said it wasn't fair. What, you, what I heard you say is that my preference for hunting requires a little bit more challenge than being in a tree stand all day and figuring out travel corridors and waiting for the buck that I've patterned down quite well through trail cameras and other intelligence to be able to position myself in a place to execute a shot that I know I'm very confident in already. And so to me, that's not quite the challenge that a backwoods black bear hunt in the sawtooth of Idaho would put me in, to me, that's more challenging. It's not a question of being fair or not. It's It's a personal preference to a style of hunting that you like
0: yeah well I, I think I think you should have both. I mean, I have both. I have the friends with ranch tags where I can go down like it's the like I'm shooting the video game and, and harvest meat, which is essential for conservation um, that I, I'm not going to complain about. but also, I have to have these challenging adventures and and more of it's the experience and the process to line out all the deficiencies in my own game. I mean, <clears throat> we teach at Fieldcraft that preparedness isn't just like your everyday carry pistol and your waistband. It's about the whole lifestyle. So if you want to be a hunter and then your idea of hunting is just hitting the tree stand predictively, and that's, that's your game plan. That's, that's one thing, but that's not my game plan. I want to be very broad. I want to be, be very versed and I want to be very diversified across different spectrums of hunting. That's why, you know, I pick up a bow. I mean, am I, I'm not very good with a bow. I didn't grow up with a bow in my hands, um, but it's challenging for me. And that's the reason why I gravitate towards it. So I, I think m- most, I would say, I would venture to say most hunters don't have that mindset, but the hunters mm-hmm. that I hang with, hang with certainly are that and, and psycho. They're like crazy, right? Mm-hmm. They're just, mm-hmm. they, they're addicted to it. But uh, I appreciate those guys. Cause those are the guys that I'm leaning on uh, for their expertise.
1: No, 100%. 100%. Let's get back to the Rhinos. So, are you going to, um, you're going to Recce before you head there this summer? You're still planning to head there this summer?
0: Yeah. So, I'm, I'm, you know, Jack Carr is coming with us. He's got a little conflict. Jack Carr?
1: Frickin', I met that, that, that SOB three days ago, man. He's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I podcasted with him three days ago. Um, I I think you and Jack Carr got a hold of Blood Origins about the same time, and he was just like, "Man, let's connect. Let's have a podcast. Let's uh, let's talk." Because he went to Northern Mozambique, Niassa, where I've been as well—proper Africa—and it was just like, "Man, it's there's no other place in the world."
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I, so we we are still planning for that trip, tentatively (laughs) around late summer, early fall, and um. The idea is to go there, kind of field assess and determine. Hey, what are the needs? What are the issues here? I I, I think for me, it it's not about like, it's not about monetization. It's not about popularity. It's right. about telling the story, right. and bringing awareness to the issue. That that's most significant for us. Mm-hmm. So if I can get, you know, if I can get Chris mm-hmm. Pratt come, um, that would be amazing because it would bring more popularity to it. Um, and he's a good dude. So I, I'm trying to get as many for people sure. on. Board as possible,
1: yeah, for sure. Well, today we posted this morning. We posted an article coming out of Kruger that Kruger has lost seventy five percent of its rhinos since two thousand and six.
0: Dave, what now? With it, seventy five
1: percent. What seventy five percent of rhinos have been lost in Kruger since two thousand and six? I heard a very disturbing statistic that north of a certain camp in Kruger, they just did a flight census, and there's zero rhinos.
0: Oh, my gosh, man. That's insanity. I'm telling you, it is
1: from the premier park that I used to attend as a kid. like Kruger was the thing, man. Kruger, is, as, as, as a kid in South Africa, was like you going to Yellowstone as a kid here in America. right? You're not allowed out of your vehicles, obviously, in South Africa because you get eaten by shit. But it's, it was the thing, right? And the big five was the thing that you wanted to check the box off. You wanted to see elephant, buffalo, lion, leopard, and rhino. And as it comes back down to the fact that these guys that are protecting the resources are paid very, very little and corruption is just rife. And now you've got sort of this idea of you're, you're training guys to protect rhinos whilst at the same time they're supplying information to the, the guys that are pulling the rhino horn. So a friend of mine that, um, after this podcast, I'll, I'll, I want to connect you to him. Um, it's almost for working multiple angles, including the intelligence side. So they're working on the training side, but now they're working on the intelligence side to figure out like, you know, what's the what's the game here,
0: which is obviously right at your alley. Yeah, I, I, man, it's disappointing. I think um, like this, what you just said about them giving back information intelligence, it's, it's almost like a vicious, endless um, cycle. It's, it's like, how do you get around that kind of, culture, which is uh, a bartering and, and some would, would say super corrupt culture. That's just their way of life. You know, they don't look at corruption as, as a bad thing. They look at it as, hey, that would be like me, you know, negotiating with the neighbors here to, to help me out because some foreigners are coming here, dumping money into our laps and we just want to get richer. I think, I think the start point for me is it needs to be revamped completely. I mean, the, the sergeant major in me wants to sit down with a whiteboard with a team of experts and then start from scratch and go, Hey, how can we address this? How can we fix this from zero? Not with old ideas, not with old input, not with legacy uh, concepts, but like from scratch because it it is a problem. And if we don't fix it, there'll be nothing left. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. There'd just Mm -hmm. be nothing left. And then because we're paying attention to politics and COVID and all this dumb crap in the world, we're forgetting about our most precious resources, which is, which is my, in my opinion, rhinos are on that list.
1: No, 100%. And that's the thing that eggs us the most, is that when you hear all about these trophy hunting bans in the UK and Connecticut and freaking on the center floor and, and, and the federal government, you're like, guys, you're, you're, you're looking at it wrong. The, the people that are... In, putting money behind anti-poaching people that are protecting habitat people that are dehorning rhino because they want to devalue the rhino for the majority the vast majority are hunting outfits and what you're telling them is like no we're going to ban what you do to protect quote unquote these valuable resources and it's the it's the antithesis of that and it's like we don't like there's proof look look kruger Kruger's a phenomenal destination but they don't have the money. They don't have this, the manpower. There's people working on it, like you're going to work on it, and these friends of ours are working on it. But you go to some private game reserves that I've been to, and they've got military-style contractors that are paid very, very well to protect these resources, and they don't—they're not getting killed, they're not getting poached. So it, it, you're right, dude. It is—you know—it's—it's it's the thing that the anti's think that we—that we as hunters do not love wildlife. We love wildlife. We want to protect wildlife. We want to sustain wildlife. That's why I do what I do every single day is because I want my kids and my grandkids to be able to experience a rhino one day.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important now is I, I think selfishly about our kids and our kids' kids and next generations because it's so easy now to not pay attention to these issues and then before you realize it, it's it's gone. And I, I think my you know I, I hope jack Carr can come but if he can't i'm going by myself i don't care if it's me and just my camera guy um
1: mm-hmm. whatever
0: i can do to tell the story um get get to krüger national park and 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 communicate about how significant of an issue this is we'll, we'll make it happen i actually For um sure. i might even go earlier than that um if 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 jack's out if um uh we were looking at uh, um Clay Croft from X Overland, who's a huge conservationist, mm-hmm. amazing human being. Um, I'd like to go with him as well, if possible.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure.
0: Well, Mike, you've been a trooper, man. I know you've been coughing your lungs out there,
1: uh, and nobody knows, but you you, you actually told me before with the podcast started oh, you got COVID. So, um, I appreciate you powering through, my man, uh, for us and for Blood Origins. And we're super humbled and grateful that um you are uh, on this podcast, and, and you like what we do, and uh, we're obviously big fans of yours too.
0: No, I appreciate it. I, anybody who reaches out to me for a podcast inquiry, the first thing I do is go to their page and just see what they're about, and it took me, I don't know, 10 seconds to figure out that you guys were my kind of people. Um, I, I think these podcasts are so important, and and to me personally, my favorite podcast to do, because... It's something that I'm very passionate about and love, and I just appreciate the hard work that you're doing. And, uh, yeah, it was my pleasure.
1: No worries, mate. Cheers. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.